0: today we will be finishing out our study of 1 Peter. You know, throughout this epistle, Peter has been writing to Christians in Asia Minor, writing to Christians who are living as aliens, as expats, if you will, in an unbelieving world. He's been writing to these churches of uh, speaking to what it means to live in a world that is hostile to their faith and becoming increasingly more so. It doesn't take too much to realize the relevance of 1 Peter for today. And as we come now to the conclusion of this epistle, we see Peter returning once again to this question. How are we to understand this reality, of living in a world in which we do not belong? With that, let us turn to First Peter, chapter five, verses six through 14. You'll find that on page 120:3 in your Pew Bible. First Peter, chapter five verses six two fourteen. 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled, and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you, and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In many respects, verse 6 picks up where verse 5 ended. You recall from last week, as as, uh, Jeremy was leading us through uh, what it meant to serve as an elder and what it meant to be in a church under the chief shepherd, verse 5 ended with, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is where our passage begins. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a proverb. Peter is quoting a proverb there. And it's interesting, as I was thinking about the difference between the proud and the humble. How do you know? What are some of the indicators? What are some of the phrases that distinguish the proud from the humble? The proud... I got this. The humble, I don't got this. The proud, you need me. The humble, I need help. The proud, look at what I did, I always win. The humble, God is good, great things He has done. The proud, I'm better than you. The humble, by the grace of God, go I. Just so we're clear, in case we missed it from last week, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but shows favor on the humble. I think that is one of the great truths we must hold on to. That if if we are standing here seeking to revel in the applause of others, if we are seeking to see the defeat of our rivals, if we are seeking to find honor from men, we need to know that we have someone who opposes us, and that is God himself. And to, and to this statement that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we get perhaps the greatest no-brainer in all of this letter in chapter and verse six. Therefore, humble yourselves. That has to be the most logical statement I've ever read. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. I love when I get clarity in Scripture. That couldn't be more clear. And so as I was thinking on this, this command of humble yourselves, I was struck by the fact that I rarely think of the word humble as a verb. I usually think of the word humble, uh, perhaps adjectivally, a humble woman. A humble man. Perhaps I think of it as a noun. Humility, humbleness. Or maybe even adverbally, walk humbly. I rather rarely think of it as a noun. And indeed, it's rarely used as a, I mean as a verb. It's rarely used as a verb. But here Peter says, humble yourselves. It's an imperative. It's not a posture, it's not a disposition, it's not a mode of being, it's not a characteristic, it's a call to action. It's a deed. It's a muscular endeavor. And so as I was thinking, what does it mean to humble as a verb, as an action? How does one humble oneself? I think there are various ways one can go here. But Peter gives us an indicator, I believe. Peter gives us here how he understands this. Notice again in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. God's mighty hand. The mighty hand of God. That's an interesting phrase. It's in the Old Testament, almost exclusively used to refer to the Exodus story. That the phrasing God's mighty hand or the mighty hand of God isn't a phrase that occurs throughout Scripture just as a a way of speaking of God's power. In fact, it's almost always used in the Old Testament to refer to what God did when he delivered his people out of Egypt. We see it in Exodus, all over Deuteronomy. You know, that's the mighty hand of the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Out of God's mighty hand, you were brought out of Egypt. In other words, when Moses spoke of what God did in liberating his people, he used the phrase, the mighty hand of God. And, and I think if, if we're understanding the context correctly then, if we're understanding uh, Peter's use of this phrase... What what Peter is talking about when he says to humble ourselves, it's within this sense of the Exodus story. The Exodus story is a powerful story. We're we're going to be spending a lot of time as a church working through this great book, but uh, if you might allow, I'll give you a bit of a spoiler. At the heart of the Exodus story is this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the Exodus story. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. By using hand of God language here, Peter, I believe, is telling us that to be humble is to recognize and accept, accept that the trials and suffering we experience because of our faith, the trials and suffering that we experience, we must accept it is not our job to fix. It is not our responsibility to make them cease. It is not our obligation to correct. To humble ourselves is to recognize that God is the one who brings us out of the land of Egypt. And so when we are to humble ourselves in this culture that is becoming increasingly more and more um, against Christ, against the gospel, it means accepting the fact that the job we didn't get because of our faith, that the team we didn't make because of our faith, that the mocking we received because of our faith, that the beating we endured because of our faith, that the martyrdom we might face because of our faith, we must accept that it is not our power to fix. We must not demand fair treatment. We must not rely upon the cleverness of our argument or the strength of our logic to find solution, I think to humble ourselves is to accept that our hope for rescue is the very same hope the Israelites had in Egypt. that is the mighty hand of God. to accept that we must call upon God. And maybe that's the best way to understand this imperative. Humble yourselves means to call upon God to rescue. And if, if we're seeing this right, that this is indeed what it means to humble ourselves, then it makes sense with what Peter says here regarding the purpose of accepting that God is the one who calls, that we call upon. For notice in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand for a purpose, that he may lift you up in due time. That he may lift you up. We are to humble ourselves. We are to accept that this world stands against us and that it is the mighty hand of God that rescues us. We must humble ourselves in this. Why? So that he may lift us up. Again, this is the story of Exodus. Have you ever really thought of the story of Exodus? It's, it's, it's fascinating. The, uh, it all begins with Joseph getting to Egypt. You remember Joseph. He had a bit of a family squabble. He had, he had some sibling problems, some, uh, 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 not unlike most families. Uh, there was some competition among the brothers, uh, I have three sons. I see this on a daily basis. I will never give one of them a really nice coat. I've just decided to protect from the possibilities of what might happen. I will not. I will not uh, purchase a nice jacket. Um, and but the this, the the because of this conflict, right, Joseph gets to Egypt. He starts out lowly. He works his way up. All of a sudden, he's in the inner circle. God uses that actually to protect the, the 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 Israelites, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, of course, and then there's Jacob and the brothers, and they, he uses that moment to protect them, and they're in Egypt from this famine, and it looks incredible. Right? Here was this uh, horrible moment of jealousy and anger that God used to turn into a measure of protection against this small, growing people. And then the powers that be shifted. Then the Pharaoh's disposition towards Joseph and his family changed. And all of a sudden, this people went from connected in the inner circle to slaves for centuries. Why? Why, Why would... Uh, the people of God, who seemingly were protected under famine and given privilege, now be put into slavery for centuries. So that at the appointed time, God could reveal himself as the one who sets the captives free. For God to reveal himself as the one who brings people out of bondage, there was a necessity of bondage. It was part of the revelatory power of God. For God to reveal himself as the one who brings a lowly people out of slavery and establishes them and makes covenant with them and then brings them into a promised land and then sets in process a, 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 a framework that will then lead to a king and a promise given to the king of David from whom would come the great king forever in Jesus Christ, from whom the great gospel would go forth to the nations. God needed to reveal himself as the one who brings people out of slavery. And I believe that is what Peter is telling us here. Humble yourselves. Accept the state of things. Don't try to fix the state of things. Because God will use this to reveal who He is. And He will lift you up in due time. This is the story of Christ. Think of Philippians 2, 5-11. The Christ hymn. A familiar passage. One of the interesting things about this great passage in Scripture in Philippians... It's one of the few other places where humble is used as a verb. Christ did what? Humbled himself. Becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Christ humbled himself. What does that mean? He became obedient. Obedient unto death, Even death on the cross. And then what's the next verse? And therefore God exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name. It's the same pattern, brothers and sisters. Christ humbled himself and God exalted him. Peter is telling us to humble ourselves. So that he may lift you up. I was trying to think of an example of what it means to humble ourselves. What does it look like? What does it look like to humble? And it was interesting because I was going through several, several examples, several examples, and none of them seemed to fit. And, and I was even praying all week, and I was like, what is this? I need an example, God. I need a, you know, can't have a sermon without an example. And, and I was getting anxious about it, which is interesting because the next verse is, talks about anxiety. And uh, I, was getting, I was getting anxious about this. And I was teaching this weekend up at the seminary. I was working through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And we were working on this passage in Matthew where it talks about how Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring the sword and then begins to discuss how the gospel separates families. There was a, a student of mine. I had heard her story before. She'd been in several of my classes. She is a, uh, a, a type of person that just makes you, makes you smile. She's is uh, uh, in her 50s, maybe 60s. I'm not a great judge of that, um, uh, uh, she's an Asian woman. Uh, recently, have come to the states, and she's a very excited person. Uh, she, you know, she's one of those people that whenever you, whenever you speak to her, she seems startled. You know, and you'll be like, "Hello," huh, you know, kind of thing. You know, you know, yeah. you, you could be having a conversation with her, and then turn away, and then come back, and it's. Huh. You know she's always she's always surprised um, and always excited and always disheveled. Um, uh, She's incredible. She just makes you smile. And we were talking about this passage of of how how the gospel separates families. You know it 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 it, it can cause pain. And I I had asked if anyone had any experience with this, and she said. And I'd heard this before, and it was good to be reminded. She had said, uh, you know, I'm the only believer in my family. My sisters, and my brothers don't believe. My mother doesn't believe. My father didn't believe. She said didn't because her father's no longer alive. And she had shared with me in the past that she wasn't even able to mourn with her family, the passing of her father, because she was unwelcomed because of her faith. Her entire adult life, she described as being an orphan to her family. And then she said, but I have thousands of brothers and sisters. God has given me thousands of brothers and sisters. That's what it looks like. That's what humble yourselves looks like. It's, uh, she didn't have an anger towards her, her, her natural family. She didn't display this, this uh, urgency to try to somehow fix it. She accepted it. She was sad. But she accepted that that was what following the gospel meant for her in this age that rejects the gospel. She accepted it and then saw the goodness that God was giving her. That, That accepting the gospel meant realizing she was losing her blood relations and could not even mourn her father but it also meant having thousands of brothers and sisters. I think this is, this is why when, when Peter is writing here, that the very next verse he comes to, verse 7, is cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The 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 language here is actually interesting, and in, in the English we see it as as two sentences. It's it's really one sentence. In fact, if you look at a bunch of different English translations, some have cast as an imperative, some have by casting, and that's a little bit closer. In other words, cast your anxiety is uh, is is not a separate idea from humble yourself. The, the, the sense of it is more, humble yourselves by casting your anxieties. That casting your anxieties upon God is what humbling yourselves look, looks like. To, to hold on to anxieties, to hold on to the fear of what may happen if we stand on faith, is a form of pride. I think that's what Peter is saying, that if we hold on to our anxieties and our worries, we are being prideful. But if we accept that, uh, that God is the one who can bring us out of Egypt, if we accept that, then we in turn give him all of our concerns and fears and anxieties, Being humble means saying the burden of solving these problems I'm facing is not mine. Pride says, I bear the burden of solving these problems. Humility says, God will take care of it. We either have to decide that the anxieties are ours to fix or his. If we are prideful, we say, I got this. If we are humble, we say, I need help. If we're prideful, we say, I'm a winner. If we're humble, we say, God, help. You see, the, the, the pride are always anxious because they believe they can control they're anxious about what tomorrow holds because tomorrow is a competition. The humble put it all on God. Now, don't misunderstand me. This isn't some sort of, I surrender, I surrender to fate, whatever will be, will be. This is not, this is not what Peter is saying. He's saying, I trust God. I trust God to care for me, no matter what the world throws at me. I trust him. He has it. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This doesn't mean that you'll get the job you want. This doesn't mean you'll win the contest you're in. This doesn't mean you'll get the girl you're after. It just simply means God cares for you. In this world, in this age, there's going to be a lot thrown at us. There was being a lot thrown at the churches Peter was writing to. Not to be worried because our God is not ignorant of our plight. Our God is not unconcerned. In fact, our God says there is a day that is coming when he will say enough, enough. It's time to exalt you. Let that day be today. And so if this is right, if verses 6 and 7 are talking about humbling ourselves in a way that is to accept the suffering and putting all of our fear on God, trusting that he is the one who sets the captives free, trusting that we can't walk out of Egypt on our own, but it is God who must bring us out, then, then I think this helps us understand verse eight and verse nine. I was having I was having a lot of trouble with the connection between six, seven, and eight, nine. Because eight, nine, at one level, seems to be shifting gears. You know, be self control or or and, and alert. This has the idea of being sober minded, being ready. And I was like, how does that play? How does that play into what Peter has just told us? And I, and I think the sense of it is 6 and 7 is this way we, we approach the world, the way we approach our understanding of it, and 8 is our marching orders. In other words, that being humble doesn't mean being passive. Being humble means being ready, being alert, Being ready and alert, recognizing that the one who is causing us suffering, the one who is attacking us, is the devil himself. Be alert, be ready. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. The devil here is depicted by a roaring lion. There are lots of ways the devil is depicted, but here it's a roaring lion, a brazen lion, just, just roaring in the face of Christians. And why does a lion roar? It's to cause panic. That's why a lion roars. When a lion is hunting, it lets out its roar, and it makes, makes uh, the, uh, 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 the, the target scatter it causes panic the roar is meant to bring fear this is what peter is telling us we are to be a, alert and sober-minded that the the devil who is a real fear he is a real enemy that his one of his primary approaches is to make you and i panic by the suffering that he can cause he's to make us panic this is, this is how these passages work together. We, we have a choice. We can either panic in the sight of a roaring lion or say, God, I put my anxieties into your hands. The devil wants us to be afraid. Be afraid of everything he can do to us. God wants our Fears and anxieties to be given to Him, so that He, He who cares for us, will protect us and lift us. We're to be ready for the attacks. We're be we're to be ready for the temptation to fear. And when when you want to be afraid brothers and sisters when it seems that what is happening to you because of your faith is is more than you can bear and you want to be scared that is the moment we say Lord bring me out of Egypt Lord Lord you are the one And so Peter says this is how we resist we resist the roaring lion this way. We resist the roaring lion by giving God our fears and anxieties. You know, James, James has something very similar. Many of you may be aware of the phrase. When, when you hear, uh, it's a question, when you hear, if I was to say, resist the devil, you most likely would finish with, and he must flee. Right? That's what we know from James. Resist the devil, and he must flee. I really wish Peter had said that here. You know, I, I'm rolling through this, and I've got the roaring lion, I've got that he causes fear, and I get, in verse 9, resist him, and I want Peter to say what James says, and he will flee. Peter doesn't say that. Peter, did you not read James? You know, um, You know, Peter... I, Peter says, resist him. Standing firm in your faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Isn't that interesting? Peter says, resist him. Why? Not because he will flee. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not speaking against that. I'm rather pointing out what Peter says. Resist him. Resist him. Because this is happening to others as well. I, I can't help but chuckle. It seems to fit very well, this humble yourselves idea. Peter, in essence, I think, is saying, resist him, but no, it's not all about you. Right? There's a sense of that. He's saying, resist him, but it's bigger than you. Resist him, because he's not attacking you. The lion isn't attacking you, because it's about you. It's about Christ. It's always about Christ. The devil hates God, hates Christ, and hates all the followers of Christ, and that's why he's attacking. And so Peter is saying resist him humbly by realizing it's not about you. And take comfort that there are others suffering as well. Take comfort that there are others suffering as well. Don't panic, stand firm there are others going through the same. And that is a comforting thought. This last bit of instruction, and I'll close out here in verse 10 and 11. And the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will Himself Restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace and his eternal glory. It's interesting time here, isn't it? After you have suffered for a little while, Time is so relative. Time is so interesting. Peter is talking about this suffering, the suffering that comes from living in a world that is against the gospel. And he describes it as a little while. Time is always relative. You know, the older I get, the briefer a year becomes. A year to my four-year-old is 25% of his life. Right? To my four-year-old, a year is forever. It is 25% of his life. A year to Harry is a decade to me. Time is relative. A year to me is six weeks to him. Right? Time is relative. Our suffering is but a little while, a whisper of time in comparison with the glory that is eternal. We suffer for but a little while, and it may not seem that way. We may suffer the entirety of our life, persecuted for our faith, and it may seem that it is going on forever, but it is but a whisper of time in comparison to what God has for us. The Israelites, the people of God, may have been in slavery for centuries. But that is but a whisper of time in comparison to what God has for his people. Because in the end, dominion belongs to him. We know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. We know how our story ends. Ends, And it is in this we can stand firm and we can resist. For the lion may pace, the lion may prowl, the lion may roar, the lion may attack, and the lion may kill. The lion may do all sorts of ill and evil against us, but the lion is but a kitten in front of the dominion of God. He cannot shake nor undo what God has planned for you and for me. God has brought us out of the land of Egypt and he will bring us into his promised land. We are but now just simply sojourners in the wilderness. But we are his. And knowing what God has done for us in Christ and knowing what God has promised to do, we stand firm. Humbling ourselves, looking forward to the day when the mighty hand of God exalts us, and that is a comforting thought. Let us pray, Father. You you are the great liberator. You are the great sustainer. You are a great hope. Lord, we know that it is in your mighty hand that That we rest. Lord, it is so hard to not be prideful. Lord, it is so difficult. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to accept that the suffering we experience for standing for you, Lord, is not our problem to solve. Lord, help us to accept that, that you are the one who cares for us, that you are the one who will exalt us, that you are the one who answers the lion. Lord, help us to draw strength and comfort in this. Father, thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you hear our cries. Thank you that you bring us out of the slavery of our sin. Father, thank you that you are bringing us to your promised land. Lord, as we walk these days these days where we we walk knowing we've been set free and looking forward to the great day of your coming. Lord, help us to be humble and cast all our anxieties on you. Lord, you oppose the proud and you give favor to the humble. I don't want us to be a proud church, Lord. I want us to be a humble one. For the dominion is yours and the glory is yours. And these days are but a whisper and a moment, Lord, and we praise you for that. And we hold to the promise of your glory. It is in your name. The name of of the one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death. The name of the one who for the prize set before him endured the cross. The name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.